Hello, I'm Anne Flaherty. This interview is for a three-part literature and music series of interviews for the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith, London. For the past 25 years, the centre has delivered the most diverse Irish cultural and educational programme outside Ireland. Today, I am delighted to welcome Richard Balls. Richard is a journalist and author, and he spent at least 20 years, I think, working in Irish journalism before uh, moving back to the UK, where he lives in Norwich. And he is the previous author of a book about Ian Dury, as well as a book about Stiff Records. Richard, you're very welcome today. I am. Yes, lovely, lovely to be with you. I actually I worked in uh, in in Ireland for about nine or ten years, just to just to clarify that. But that was uh, during during the nineteen nineties. I spent um, pretty much the whole of that time working uh, for Irish newspapers, um, including the Irish Times, the Evening Herald, the Press Group as well. Before it before it went, which of course uh, uh, in common with yourself. Indeed. Um, so uh, you also describe yourself as a diehard music fan. And I wanted to ask you how this book came about. A Furious Devotion is the title of your book about Shane McGowan. Um, there have already been several books written about Shane, as well as documentaries and films. What was it, Richard, that you thought needed uh, to be to be done to bring the story further? Well, I think a couple of things, really. Uh, one was that um, obviously a lot of time had passed uh, between between those books. So I think one of the most recent ones was was Victoria um, Clark's uh, Shane's Partners book, which came out in the early 2000s. So knowing this book would come out in around 2020, 2021, uh, a lot of time had, had passed. And actually, in recent years, there's been quite significant things have happened uh, in Shane's life. Uh, he uh, he got married. Uh, he's been uh, awarded an Ivan Novello Award uh, for for songwriting. Uh, he had his 60th birthday celebrations at National Concert Hall in in Dublin. So I think that was one of the things really was actually bringing the story uh, up to date uh, for people because although he hasn't recorded much material in in that period, you know that a lot of things have still happened in his in his life, uh, and also. Uh, Myths have grown up like weeds around uh, Shane's story, uh, which has made it very, very difficult to to sort of to sort out, uh, you know, what what his background actually has been. And uh, and it's been misreported. There was a BBC documentary, uh, The Great Hunger, which reported that Shane had been born on the banks of the River Shannon, uh, not uh, Tunbridge Wells in Kent, which is where he was actually born. So. I think also I found I felt that uh, it's the journalist in me when I see things that that are that are incorrect uh, and I think these are important details as well. I mean, it doesn't matter if 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 a, a concert date is wrong or someone gets a year wrong about a record released or something, but where someone's actually born and where they're raised and you know, it's in order to write a story about somebody, I think you have to get those things right. Hmm. Well, in doing that, so and in wanting to get the, the record straight, obviously you had to go to the horse's mouth, literally. So how difficult was you, was it for you to get Shane's cooperation? Uh, to get his cooperation uh, was, was quite easy in the sense that um, Paul Ronan, who is really the most important person in terms of this book um, coming together and, and being a thing, uh, he, he's one of Shane's oldest friends. I mean, they've known each other since the 1980s. And, uh, and and still in touch. Paul lives over here. And every time Shane would come to England uh, over the years, he'd always stay with Paul. And I 
I, I interviewed Shane for the book about Stiff Records in London and loved him. Thought he was great, uh, great fun. Uh, and, and I also had a hunch that there was a lot more to him than had been reported. Uh, and, and, and most people's most most people's um, perception of Shane is as somebody who drinks a lot and he's did fairy tale of New York and you know the people don't really know that much about him. So uh, I saw an opportunity there to to do that. And Paul uh, effectively asked Shane, "Would it be okay if I started um, you know coming to see him and with a view to doing a book?" Shane said he wasn't against it. Which in in Shane's world, if Shane's not against something, that's probably about as positive uh, an affirmation that as you could actually get. So uh, I started going with Paul to the Shane's flat in in Dublin, and uh, so get, get, getting the cooperation and getting the opportunity to do that uh, was actually quite easy because Paul and I would would go over and sometimes we'd stay with Shane, and that gave me an advantage in the sense that over the years, people who've tried to interview Shane um, uh, have found that that's actually a very very difficult thing to do, nigh on impossible. First of all, he very rarely turns up. Um, if he did turn up, it'd be about five o'clock in the morning um, and uh, when nightclubs and stuff were just clearing up. And uh, and also uh, he hates being interviewed, which is another barrier, really. So uh, this is somebody who hates being interviewed, doesn't like talking about their work, is very shy. Um, th th these are not great environment. It's not a brilliant uh, sort of interview environment, really. Um, so getting cooperation easy, getting him to talk, very, very difficult. I mean, people have... Uh, people who have tried to do things with Shane have, um, you know, described it as being like uh, wildlife photography. You know, you, you you wait three weeks outside in the freezing cold to see a snow leopard and you, you try and snatch about three seconds of footage. And it's a little bit like that. So I think because I was sitting with him and we were just sitting having a drink and watching television, which is his favourite thing to do, um, that gave me the advantage. But it's still, you know, very, very difficult getting that information out of him. So how long did you spend then traveling over and back to Dublin and, you know, talking to Shane and to Victoria and to other people who knew him? Um, well, I mean, in terms of uh, going over to Ireland, I think I went over about five times. I live in uh, in Norwich and, uh, and uh, I traveled over four or five times and went to Tipperary as well to see uh, Siobhan and, uh, and Shane's father, Morris, who is a wonderful man, absolutely great character, um, big fan of his and of course Siobhan. Um, in terms of doing the the rest of the interviews, I mean, I, I interviewed over 60 people uh, for the book. And obviously that involved a lot of traveling around, huge amounts of time. Um, often just tracking people down takes takes time. But, but um, I believe that, um, that that's just my way of, of doing books. I mean, different authors have different styles of, of, of approach. Uh, mine is, you know, really to, to try and find as many people as possible. Um, who, who who've known the subject, um, particularly in in um, those really important times in their life. Well, you start the book uh, in Tipperary and Shane's devotion to to his mother's ancestral home is well documented. And then uh, you move on to his early childhood upbringing, where, as you say, not a lot of people know that he actually was born in Tunbridge Wells and went to a local uh, prep school and in fact showed very early promise in his early writings and in fact you interviewed uh, his English teacher from primary school days who had in fact kept some of his essays. Yeah I mean that was extraordinary really. Uh, Tom Simpson uh, who, who sadly has passed away since I interviewed him for, for the book he was probably about 90 when I went to see him um, still living down in, in Tunbridge Wells 
And um, he had kept, as you say, uh, exercise books, little scraps of paper. Some of these little scraps of paper with written in, Shane had written in red felt tip pen when he was about 10 uh, in, you know, class so-and-so uh, at Homewood House School, uh, which is um, just outside Tunbridge Wells. Very, very exclusive fee-paying school that his mother was incredibly uh, keen for him to, to go to and get the best possible education uh, that, that money could buy. And, um, yeah, I mean, this teacher spotted uh, in Shane and a, a real natural gift for writing, extraordinary writing. And when he would go back to, to Tipperary on his holidays, he would, uh, I think, listen into conversations that people were having, his aunts and uncles and his cousins, and he'd, 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 he'd listen to what people were saying about the neighbours and so-and-so up the road. And, and he, he obviously had that ear for stories, He's always listening, listening for stories. As a as a boy, obviously he was doing this, and then he would come back and write up these um, some of the things that he'd heard and turn them into stories and essays at school. And when the teacher would say, "Well, Shane, what what have you read on your summer holidays? What was your reading list?" Expecting, you know, most of the children obviously picking books that were suitable for their age. Shane would had read Dostoevsky, Graham Greene, uh, James Joyce, D. H. Lawrence, you know. Incredible. So that talent was was recognised at an early age by by that uh, English teacher, as you say. But things changed then because the family moved to to London to uh, an area around the Barbican, and things started to go wrong there for Shane, and and, and his mother wasn't very happy either. So they moved, as you say, from uh, this. Uh, I've actually been been there to see it. So when they were living in Tunbridge Wells, uh, the house that they spent a lot of time in at Newlands was a sort of large, detached house uh, in a in a you know sort of classic suburban English road, very quiet neighbourhood, very well to do. They moved to the centre of London. That was something that Morris was particularly keen on. He was very interested in um, history. Uh, he also was quite excited by this idea of the Barbican, which at the time was considered to be uh, at the sort of forefront of of modern housing. This this was cutting edge um, uh, accommodation at the time. So these flats, um, as we know, there's a number of blocks there. They were actually still being built when the McGowans moved in there. So they, you know, they were living there with a the constant sound of construction work going on around them. Um, so not only uh, th that that was dreadful for Therese, Shane's mother, because she was from a rural background in Tipperary, liked the peace and quiet, um, living in the, in this kind of brutalist uh, block, uh, in much closer to the centre of London, um, with all sorts of people coming and going day and night, uh, mainly in and out of Shane's room, uh, and and this sound of construction going on. So that that really um, played on her mental health, and so Therese. Uh, became quite quite ill while they were living at the Barbican, and she just hated hated living there really. And at that time too, even though Shane had uh, won a partial scholarship to prestigious school, Westminster, he was also unhappy and uh, uh, beginning to. It was just, on the one hand, he was beginning to get into music, but then on the other hand, he was also getting into drugs. Yeah, um, I mean, Westminster was a really bad idea. I, I mean, I think that that's. that's uh, I think most people probably agree on that. Really, uh, Tom Simpson, even uh, Shane's teacher, knew at the time it was a bad idea. But uh, Bob Baramian, who was a very ambitious head teacher at Homewood, I think he saw 
um, the opportunity for Shane to, to to do this and saw it as a really good thing for Homewood that they would have one of their pupils uh, graduate on to, to Westminster. This would be a feather in the cap for, for Homewood. Um, Shane's mother was very keen because, again, she, she wanted him to have this best education. Terrible choice. I mean, Shane was already, uh, you know, a little bit rebellious. Uh, he, he had no, I mean, although he was very, very good academically, he had no real interest uh, in, in progressing in that way. That wasn't what he, his focus was on. And uh, he, he was eventually caught dealing drugs near to, to, to the flat, the Barbican. School got wind of what he was, what he was doing and, uh, and he was expelled. He was only there for 14 months, probably. So after that, during, you know, that period of being in the wilderness, he begins to sort of develop his interest in music and going to gigs. And then you go and chart his rise from being sort of on one side of the stage <clears throat> as a member of the audience to actually joining his first band. And um, it, I suppose it, you, you could say maybe that in, in, the, in punk, he found his tribe, really. Oh, absolutely. You're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, I think what probably the most important thing uh, that happened in Shane's life, uh, certainly in terms of looking at it in the context of his music, was was going to see the Sex Pistols. Um, he'd, he'd been in uh, psychiatric uh, care for about six months when he was 18, 17, 18. He actually spent his 18th birthday on the wards of Royal Bethlehem Hospital uh, in London, otherwise known as Bedlam. And this, so he would have been surrounded by people with really serious um, psychotic illnesses, some of them getting ECT, uh, you know, electric shock treatment. Quite a brutal uh, sort of environment for, for a teenager who's already um, struggling. Um, so we, I, think, I don't think you can sort of overstate the, the, the impact that would have had. But almost the first thing that happened after he left uh, psychiatric care was he went to the Nashville Rooms uh, in London, which was part of the sort of, you know, live music scene. And he saw the 101ers, Joe Strummer's band, supported by the Sex Pistols. And he was there, obviously, early enough to see the Pistols, looked up at the stage, saw John Lydon, and, you know, the penny rolled into the slot right at that moment. I mean, he looked up at the stage, he saw somebody who looked looked weird, like Shane did. Shane looked weird, and that's why he was constantly uh, picked on and, and beaten up, uh, because he looked odd. John Lydon looked odd. Uh, John Lydon was from a second-generation Irish family. Um, and he was so out there with, with his personality and, and being, being Irish and being himself and looking as, as he did, not caring about any, what anybody thought at all. And for somebody who'd grown up in, you know, as Shane had done as a second-generation Irish person living in, in London, you know that the impact of that. Uh, 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 this is aside, obviously, from the the enormous impact that the music had on him. I mean, this this ferocity, this rebel heart that was in at the centre of the Pistols. So everything just came together in that one moment. Mm-hmm. Well, you've described very vividly in your book uh, the the music scene at the time, and you must have gone round to every pub in Camden and Soho that they played in, and every squash and uh, that that he ever lived in, and talked to people that maybe had never been interviewed before. Uh, would that be correct? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I think one of the important things, again, uh, for the book in terms of the value, when, you, when you're writing about somebody, and as you say, other books have already been out there, you, you kind of ask, well, what, what, can, what value can I add, really? 
And um, apart from bringing it up to date, I think one of the things was there were so many people who'd never been interviewed. I always found that rather strange that, that you know, you have these ex-girlfriends, uh, ex-landladies, uh, ex-teachers, all these people, none of whom had ever been approached. And I think partly that was because the focus has always been on Shane's mother's family and not on his father's family. So that that immediately kind of um, you know drew, drew a veil over the Tunbridge Wells scene and all the rel- all the relatives who lived there. So um, yeah, I was very very keen to talk to people who uh, who, who you know who'd never had a, a say, and also I was very keen to have uh, female voices in the book because a lot of rock books can be a bit blokey. <laughs> for want of a better for want of a better word and um in the, the band apart from cot was obviously guys and um you know you can be it's very easy to, to 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 kind of go down that route and talk to roadies and managers and so on but i was very keen that that women who've played a huge role in in shane's life um and you know he loves women and and as brilliant with women of all, all ages and, and and you know I wanted them to have a voice in the book too. Mm. Well that's very interesting and um, one of the things that you mentioned in the book was uh, that women are very drawn to his vulnerability and wanted to mother him. So what were the impressions of Shane that you got from talking to all these people across London uh, that uh, maybe were different to what had come out about him before? Yeah, and I think when you see somebody on stage, um, you know, who, who they're, and they're very comfortable in that in that role, and and, and so on, uh, you know, it's often they can be quite different people uh, off it. And Shane, I think, in the sense that, I mean, on on one hand, what you see is what you get. I'm not saying that he's created a persona on stage in the way that, for example, Tom Waits has, and, mm. and or David Bowie, and sort of inhabited something. I'm not. I don't think he did that, but. There is a side to him which is, I think, quite vulnerable. Uh, he is shy, definitely. He's quite private, has a very small sort of um, coterie of friends. So I think that kind of gentleness, shyness, was something that, that was definitely teased out by talking to some of the ex-girlfriends and, and his sister as well. Hmm. Um, talking about his sister, um, were there were there things about Shane that she wanted that she was hoping that you would uh, correct, as it were, some of that mythology that you mentioned earlier in the book? Was that very important for the family that somebody uh, wanted to put uh, things straight on certain issues? Yeah, definitely. I, I think so, because um, uh, although, I mean, one thing, you, you can't sort of overstate the importance of Tipperary and the, those trips to Ireland. So um, in the sense that, that that is the most important uh, influence on Shane has been, has, has been those trips. And he, and he kept going there for years and years. They were like pilgrimages for him going back to the commons uh, at, at Kearney, uh, which is kind of, uh, for anyone who knows that part of the world, this is, this is North Tipperary uh, near Nina. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I spent quite a bit of time uh, in Nina doing the book. Um, so I think it was important because where somebody is, is born and raised is is important to who that who they become. I think that's true of all of us, mm-hmm. uh, particularly those first few years. And it had been reported for forever that Shane had spent the first six years of his life living in Ireland. And that just isn't the case at all. Um, he he uh, also was reported that his parents were kind of visiting uh, England when he was born. Not true. They weren't visiting England. They'd actually moved, as many uh, couples had done, look for work. 
in in the late 50s, I think 57, and were already living in England and were settled when he was born. So that wasn't right either. So it definitely was important for the family. You mentioned there that side uh, of his personality, the vulnerability, etc. And I think that uh, poetic um, side uh, is comes out in, in many of his songs, isn't it? That he's very well able to capture, say, for example, the sense of loneliness of the emigrant. You know, it's that kind of uh, in something like Dark Streets of London, where you have the rain and the cold, and no money. And it's a, a London of pubs and bookies. So he's very tuned into um, people who were maybe on the margins and 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 then of course there is then at the on the other hand that kind of um raw energy and fierceness then of of his interpretation of of Irish ballads um what do you think was uh, the essence really of his appeal not just to young Irish people in London but just to the wider music population and an audience well, I think I mean speaking as somebody who, who who's English, I don't have any. Despite having lived in Ireland for a long time, for the whole of the nineties, I don't have any Irish connections at all. Not uh, no family connection. So um, when I saw the Pogue supporting Elvis Costello and the Attractions um, in nineteen eighty four, that was in uh, the UEA in Norwich. Um, I'd never heard of the Pogues. That was literally the first time that I ever saw Shane McGowan was was at that concert, and I didn't know who the Pogues were. I remember seeing a poster that said Red Roses for me, the Pogues, didn't know what that was. Um, so for me, as somebody who was growing up, I was a massive music fan, always watching Top of the Pops every week, buying me, buying records. Uh, I was about 17, I think, at the time. And for me, it was uh, really a breath of fresh air because this is this is when, you know, Duran Duran were on yachts, uh, Wham were singing about Club Tropicana, um, this kind of escapism. I mean, that just did not speak to me as a, as a teenager living in, uh, you know, in suburbia in, in, in England. That just meant nothing to me at all. And all of a sudden, there was this gang of people um, wearing, you know, these kind of suits, black suits, and, and playing instruments that I'd never seen anybody play before. I mean, with the exception of Dexys Midnight Runners, that kind of music just wasn't around at all. Um, and even Dexys weren't a sort of Irish band or they weren't playing Irish music per se, whereas the Pogues clearly were. So that would have been my first ever introduction to Irish music. And, and in fact, it may be uh, in a sub subliminal level that I moved to Ireland a number of years later because, you know, I got interested in Irish culture through through the group. But secondly, I think in, in terms of the appeal to Irish people living in England, I think it was a sense of um, a band that they could say, this is our group. Um, I know that Martin O'Malley uh, in an RTE program uh, that was a, a tribute to Shane, he, he's a former presidential candidate in the US and uh, a, a former governor of Baltimore. And he basically said that, you know, this was a band that Irish people in America, the diaspora uh, in, in, in places like Boston and New York would say, this is our group. Finally, we've got a group that's ours. So I think there was a sense of, uh, of of the Pogue saying to people, "Be proud of your Irish identity. This isn't something to be, you know, to be uh, ashamed of in any way. And be out there and be and be proud." And, and I think some of the gigs that the Pogues played were were kind of cathartic. 
Yes, yeah, people all, always refer to the energy, uh, uh, almost a kind of a fearful energy because you never quite knew what was going to happen next. And when you talk there about the appeal to the Irish in America and to the Irish in London, uh, particularly, you know, to kids who were brought up here of Irish parents, I suppose maybe the appeal to them was that the old songs were were being taken to a new level with a different energy because the old songs that their parents' generation uh, looked looked to were you know didn't speak to them so it was really just a different a whole new different interpretation that gave that that kind of yeah. everything. I think it's in, and it de- definitely you're absolutely right and uh, uh, and I think it's quite interesting how in a way that the Pogues were, uh, how they were received in Ireland, for example, at the time, because um, they weren't an Irish group. You know, this is not, this is another thing that's that's part of the kind of mythology. You know, this this one of the most famous, if you said to someone, name the most famous Irish band, they'd probably say, they might say, well, say you two, and then the Pogues. The Pogues weren't an Irish band. There was no, when they formed, there wasn't a single person in the group who was, who'd been born in Ireland. Um, m- most of them were from England. So and I think that's why... Uh, you had that kind of fierce energy as well, because um, part of it was like, for example, Shane's anger. Uh, he had a lot of anger at that time and earlier about what about the fact there were troops, uh, British troops in Northern Ireland. That was something, and he knew about his family's Republican uh, connections. So, you know, Shane was kind of uh, in terms of what was going on in his head. Um, that, that, that it's very important, I think, to, to appreciate. It was through that kind of prism of, of second generation Irish looking looking across at Ireland and looking at all these things uh, that that made the Pogues uh, what they were and interpret Irish music in the, in the way that they did. Mm. Well, he certainly wasn't. Uh, he didn't hold back on his views, and he often got beaten up for them as well. Isn't that true? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he. Yeah, I think he got beaten up very badly, quite quite often. Uh, he was left, you know, lying in in a pool of blood. I think in the in the toilets at the electric ballroom in Camden, and I think that he got attacked in there twice. Um, girlfriends who I interviewed uh, re- recalled, you know, in, in terrible detail about how how he was assaulted a number of times. And I think that was partly because he was talking about the IRA. Uh, and of course, this was at a time when there was a sort of mainland bombing campaign going on. Um, the Pogues were actually on the road touring with Elvis Costello when the Brighton bombing happened. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, when he was in the nips and, and around the punk scene, talking about the IRA uh, in, a, in a positive way, uh, that, 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 was, that was not, you know, that was a dangerous thing to be doing. Mm-hmm. Well, as you say, they were on the road, they were incredibly popular, and there are so many famous songs associated with them. But uh, Fairy Tale of New York is still the, the big one that uh, people talk about. And, and obviously, even you know younger generations have been exposed to it because it's played everywhere every yeah. Christmas. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and uh, about that first uh, that trip to America? Yeah, I think um, I think the songs. I understand that the songs' roots really were in. Uh, I think a bet that Frank Murray had of the who used to be the manager of the Pogues. I think he sort of said, "I I, I bet you can't do a Christmas song." You know, there was. A, I think the gauntlet was kind of thrown down. So, Jim and Shane thought, "Right, okay, well, we'll we'll see what we can do." And um, and so they started working on something. And Jim and Jim was very involved as well. He he started working a kind of story out. Uh, that involves sailors, I believe, or something like that. And then the song, uh, and then Shane was putting his thoughts into it. And it actually took about two years or more for the, for that song to actually uh, 
reach what we now know and what's played in every single shop and you, you can't and every radio station you can't get away from it at Christmas and um, initially um, I think when Shane had the idea of, of making them emigrants and, and and setting it in in New York was that was a, a stroke of genius really um, because although it's a Christmas song it really is a story of of loneliness um, unfulfilled ambitions and dreams uh, of the the emigrants through the emigrants um, perspective um, you think of all those people over the years who sort of arrived at Ellis Island and you know would have had these you know, great hopes of a new life. And so, you know, so in some cases that might have happened. But of course, Shane knew a lot of people uh, who were on the street. He'd been through very, very difficult times. He, he associated in London with a lot of people who were on the margins, as you as you very well put earlier. And uh, so that's what, for me, is one of the wonderful things about Fairy Tale of New York, is it, it is a fantastic Christmas song to listen to. Um, and has that wonderful chorus that everybody sings along to, but actually, it's 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 got so much depth to it. Mm, it's in no way a fairy tale, that's for sure. No, no, and that brings me on to the subject then of um, Shane's uh, addiction, and um, you don't shy away from uh, discussing this in the book. And I wanted to talk to you about the impact of his uh, addiction on his loved ones, on on his parents, and and his sister Siobhan, and of course on his now wife Victoria, as well, of course, as friends who helped him along the way. And it really does seem miraculous that he didn't die of an overdose like so many of his friends did. Um, can you talk to us about uh, about that and uh, what they said to you and how they've coped yeah. with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the most harrowing things, really, that I that I sort of dealt with in, in the book was was uh, it's very difficult for families, I, I, I think with uh, who have a, an, an addicted person and some a loved one who is addicted has an addiction to drugs or drink uh the impact on them is is colossal uh they see somebody who who they care for very much kind of disappearing and in front of them in the case of Shane i think um Siobhan i've quoted in the book at one point saying you know the the, the person that she knew and loved was just vanishing you know in 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 the sort of late 80s um, before before he was um, eventually dismissed from the group, and um, I think what, at one point he's like lying on the floor, and a doctor came to see them and, and said to Siobhan, "If if he doesn't change, he's going to be dead in six weeks." I mean, literally to be told that, and that that affected Siobhan's own health, as as you as you would imagine. She had him committed at one point, or the family had him committed to Saint John of God's uh, in in County Dublin, um, and. Shane, literally, when he was in the vehicle being taken there, was saying to Siobhan, why are you doing this to me? What, you know, how dare you do this? And she's, I think she said, I'm, I'm doing what Phil Linnett's sister wished she'd had done. Um, you know, doing these things to somebody that, that, that is in your family, that, that's an incredibly hard decision. And so, and obviously they visited him, and just as they had done uh, when he was 18 and on the wards of the Royal Bethlehem Hospital. So, He's had a lifetime of of mental health issues. That's 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 the fact of the matter. Um, right back to his childhood, you know, to to you know, he, he there have been mental health issues there, and yes, of course, the drink and drugs has played massively into into that. I do believe that it's in recent years has uh, 
when he got into heroin in, in the 90s, I think that has really st um, stifled his creativity because he hasn't really recorded anything original for about 25 years. And, uh, you know, you have to you have to kind of wonder what the reasons for that are. So I think, that, you know, that it's been amazingly damaging for him, um, but, but also, as, as you say, to, to, to the people around him. That um, that heroin issue had uh, was the subject of a famous row between himself and Sinead O'Connor after she reported him to the police for taking heroin, and um, he uh, there was a, a very uh, famous late late show interview with Pat Kenny about that, and uh, where of course initially they it was very widely publicised. Um, he was very angry with her, obviously. But in, in later years, he actually uh, turned that around and said that it was the beginning of the end of him taking heroin. And he actually thanked her for it and they renewed their friendship. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I spoke to Sinead O'Connor uh, at length for, for the book um, and she, she was incredibly helpful, I have to say. It was, it was a very interesting speaking to her because, because she's so forthright as well. And I think there is an honesty in the book. Well, certainly I've tried, I tried my best to be honest in the book uh, and not shy away from the, the, the difficult things. And the lowest point I think Shane was at was, was that period in the, in the 90s, around the time of the Pogues, really, because, um, you know, if, if people thought the Pogues were bad, that, you know, that that was a Sunday school outing compared to the Popes uh, and what they got, you know, and, and that's really where the heroin uh, kicked in. And, you know that is an uh, just the lowest you you can get really when you're when you're just spending your your day your your, your your days just just you know snorting lines of heroin in a flat and then other people coming in and there were people who died in Shane's flat uh, and um, ambulances were being, were being called regularly because people were overdosing. This is this is as low as it gets, and. Um, Certainly, it had a, a, a terrible effect on on Shane. Um, and I think he I think he was lost in that time, really. And I think Sinead O'Connor, although it was unpopular, I think she did do him a favour. Definitely, I think uh, maybe you know she probably she's the only person who would actually have the the, the guts to, to to actually do that. And just walked went round to Kentish Town Police Station and said, "Look, I'm trying to help my friend here." Um, it could have had uh, quite serious ramifications uh, because if he'd uh, if he'd had a, a conviction as a result, he wouldn't have been able to go to the, the United States. And I think I've read, written in the book about one of his ex girlfriends was a solicitor, and he got her uh, on board, and and she helped I think to ensure that he got a caution, which meant that he could continue to 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 travel. Mm -hmm. um, and was it around that time that he he went to the Priory then, so that he could? Um, um, undergo rehab and I think Victoria was also in there at the same time because she was suffering from depression which is probably understandable given what she was living with yeah. so very difficult uh, uh, days for them but yeah. as someone now who's spent a lot of time with Shane and and Victoria in Dublin in the last few years how would you describe his life now I mean he's in his early 60s yeah, I mean, he's 64 on Christmas Day, uh, of course, his birthday. Not, not only is he synonymous with Christmas through fairy tale of New York, but he's, <laughs> he's also born on Christmas Day. Uh, maybe, maybe that's where the sort of Messiah complex is. No, that's, that's, that's unfair. But I, I think um, they, they are a, a really great couple, uh, despite the fact that they are very different people. Um, they, they are a great couple. Um, they were both really, really generous uh, to me. 
Um, and I really enjoyed, you know, spending time with with both of them. I interviewed Victoria at length uh, towards the end of, of writing the book, uh, and and she was very very helpful as well. And and she had some great insights, of course, uh, in, into to who Shane is. Um, he's not in great shape physically um so it's 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 difficult now for him to to really do much um because he hasn't walked probably for about five or six years now he had um, a bad fall didn't he in 2015 yeah so he hasn't and and what happened uh you get various different reports about that but i mean essentially i think his pelvis was was uh treated and i think that that uh improved things but his his hip was uh, he never underwent the operation that he really needed on his hip and um that's really not an operation that any doctor in ireland wants to get wrong and i think that uh, shane probably didn't do the things that maybe would have been required in order to to, to prepare himself for for that operation etc etc then you'll get different views about that uh but what what we all know is that it it, it hasn't been he hasn't had that operation and and yeah that that fall unfortunately has meant that uh, he's 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 very very limited in what he can now do. Mm. And is is he doing any songwriting or any writing at all? I mean, the time I spent with him, I, I didn't really see him doing any writing. But I do know that he's been in the studio even in recent months. I think he would have been in more if 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 it hadn't been for for the pandemic. Oh yes, um, yes. but he, he has been in the he has been in the studio. Uh, so he, I think that's a good sign because it's showing that despite. The fact that he's got, you know, he's got physical disabilities. Um, it, clearly, there is a desire to 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 still uh, to to record music. Well, despite all the difficulties uh, down through the years, he's a very very well loved and highly regarded man. And I think that uh, it was recorded in the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award he got on his 60th birthday when yeah. uh, celebrities from all over the world, from the worlds of acting as well as music, um, came to pay tribute. Why do you think he has that enduring appeal for people? It's a really, really good question. Um, I suppose he means, uh, you know, different things to to different people, I guess. Um, I think one of the things is that uh, people who do meet him, he is a really lovely guy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of uh, musicians that you meet who don't fall into that category. And and, and if you're a big fan of theirs, that, that you come away feeling rather disappointed. Um, Shane is, is the opposite of that. I mean, he'll talk to anybody, you know, he'll sit in a pub and if so, you know, you can go over to him and, and uh, you, he won't send you away. Um, so I think that he's, he is a genuinely nice guy, uh, really cares about other people. Very, uh, He's a sort of humanitarian. Um, but of course, not everyone has, has met him and spent time with him. I think the music is timeless. The music, to me, uh, speaks to old Ireland. I think that's one of the things I'd learned about Shane, I believe, is that he, it's, it's not, it wasn't writing about um, the Dublin or the Ireland or Tipperary even uh, of the time in which he was writing, i.e. in the 1980s or 90s. He was writing about old Ireland. That's what really um, chimes with, with Shane. Are those old values. I mean, if you sit him down with old, elderly people, he's brilliant. It won't be anyone better um, because he just loves that that old Ireland. Has great respect for for people who are older, um, and and it was the old music that 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 the Pogues expanded. It was that that tradition that the Pogues expanded. Really, so I think ultimately the answer to your question, although I've rambled a bit there, <laughs> is that the songs are timeless. Uh, they have a, they have wonderful, wonderful uh, tunes, 
Bruce Springsteen said recently that he thought his own music wouldn't be listened to much in the future, whereas he said he thought Shane's music, people would still be listening to it in 100 years' time, which is That's quite extraordinary, a isn't it? Amazing thing to say. And then you listen to Fairy Tale of New York and you think, yeah, it's probably right. Well, Paul Simon said on The Late Late Show, I think, that he captured the, the soul of a nation. He captured the soul of Ireland. And he's been described as a, a poet, a punk, an Irishman and an outsider. Do you think yeah. that's a good description of him? Perfect. I think it's a perfect description. Definitely outsider. I think the Pogues were a group of outsiders uh, as a band. That was one of the one of the another one of the reasons why you had that kind of um, spirit that came out of the group. That kind of ferocity uh, and passion. Uh, definitely a poet, no question. You, and you only need to look at the, the his homework from Homewood House School to see that that, that actually went. Uh, you know, right back. In fact, I've actually got here, might be of, uh, of interest, is um, this book here, um, which is Children as Writers. Mm-hmm. And uh, early 70s, award-winning entries from the 12th Daily Mirror Children's Literary Competition. And uh, it was one of Shane's uh, stories that he wrote at Homewood House that won a prize uh, and, and ended up in this, in this book. Um, definitely a poet uh, and punk, for sure. I mean, I think there are very few... People around nowadays, you'd say, are, are genuine punks, and Shane is definitely one of them. Would you say that at this stage of his life now, uh, that uh, he's reached a sort of acceptance of who he is and and his life and where you know where he's at? I think so. On one level, I've always been quite impressed, uh, actually, almost inspired really by how he um, copes with his physical um, difficult difficulties at the moment. Um, I used to sit there and think, gosh, you know, I'd be so uh, depressed and, and down if I, if I was like that. He doesn't seem to be. Uh, it doesn't seem to affect him in that way. So, yes, on that level, I think there is, I think he is kind of, uh, there is an acceptance of, of, of where he is. I think there are things from his past uh, that maybe uh, he hasn't ever d- properly dealt with in his head. And that may be why he sits and watches TV all day and just lives and appears to sort of live through the things that he's that he's watching, um, but loves violent films. I mean, gosh, if I see another violent film again I, I, after sitting with him, it'll be, it'll be one too many. I mean, he just, and he'll watch, he'll watch The Godfather all the way through and then immediately start watching it all over again. It's like he's kind of living, and I think Victoria said, you know, he, he he's, he's, he's in the film. He's putting himself in there. He wants to be one of those violent people. He, he isn't a violent person. In fact, everyone I spoke to in the book said, absolutely not. Shane is not a violent person. But he likes to, to think that he is, and he likes to do that through watching these these films. So I think there's, there's things maybe that he hasn't um, really dealt with. Uh, but again, I'm not a psychologist. Um, you know, he, he, he's probably a psychologist field day. And, um, you know, I, I, I think there is, I think that he, that he has accepted, I think, who, who he is and where he's at. Yeah. I suppose there's a certain amount of stability to life now because the family have moved back to Ireland. And so he's got, I know his mother passed away a few years ago, but his father, Morris, is still there uh, in Tipperary and Siobhan, his sister, they're very close. And of course, he's uh, got Victoria to look after him. They did finally marry a few years ago after three decades together. So uh, and and, uh, in terms of the other band members, uh, is there still a friendship between them all? Do they keep in touch and come over and visit him 
Yes, I mean, Jem Viner uh, is, is the one who spends easily the most amount of time, and, and he's a really, really genuine man, lovely, lovely guy, very helpful uh, to me with, with the book. Uh, he goes to see Shane regularly, almost probably monthly, uh, so they spend a lot of time together. James Fernley lives in America. Um, they, they're, they're not really in touch uh, very much. Uh, Terry Woods lives in Ireland, and I think he sees him sometimes. Um, with the book, uh, two or three of the members of the post wouldn't wouldn't have wouldn't take part in the book, and, and that you know that as an author you find that that happens, mm-hmm. uh, and they'll, they'll have their own reasons for that. But um, but certainly when uh, the 60th birthday celebrations happened at the National Concert Hall in Dublin, um, Cotter Reardon was there, Spider Stacy, and um, and and other members of the Pogues, Terry as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very frank and extensive biography. And one thing that I really enjoyed, too, were the uh, the photographs, uh, really interesting photographs of him from childhood and up to uh, his time in London. And uh, no, really, really a, an amazing um, a, amount of work that you put into it, Richard. Thank you. Um, I, mean, I, I really appreciate that. And uh, I mean, one of the things I always try to do is, is put a lot of effort into the into the pictures, try to find uh, images where I can, that no one has ever seen before. I was mm-hmm. looking, comparing the images that I'd been given with previous books and trying to make sure that, that people, what people were seeing were new. Mm-hmm. A Furious Devotion, uh, uh, the authorised story of Shane McGowan, and it's published by Omnibus Press, uh, available in all good bookshops, as they say. And I just wanted to ask you what your next project was before we finish the interview. Yeah, well, I don't have a project uh, lined up at the moment. Um, I think after having done the Shane book, which is obviously a huge, as you say, massive amount of work, um, I'm probably going to take a, a break from, from from before I do before I do the next one. I also work full time uh, 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 in communications. Okay. So, you know, I, do, I have a full-time job to keep me occupied when I'm, uh, even when I'm thinking about what, what next book, uh, I might do. It's quite difficult, obviously doing books when, when you are working full-time and trying to, yes. but, you know, somehow I managed to fit it, it, all the trips to Ireland and, and everything else, uh, in, into, into the time. And, um, I'm really happy with the, the way that the book uh, came out in the end. Um, it, it was delayed because of COVID. It was meant to come out um, last year. Uh, it got shelved along with a lot of other titles, quite understandably. Uh, but actually, I'm glad that um, I'm glad that it's come out now. And uh, I have done some physical events um, to promote it, which obviously I wouldn't have been able to do last year. Yes. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure.